Hi, this is Tyler Murphy, and you're listening to the Montana Gallery Podcast. Today on the show, we have my friend Alvin Veselka, and I was just down hanging out with him and uh, Josh Clare, and we went around painting a little bit, did, did some filming, got this little podcast interview in. We're going to jump right into this interview. Uh, Alvin was just telling me about a guy who's been kind of influencing his thinking lately. That guy's name is Jocko Willink. You've been an artist for for quite a long time, and this idea of discipline equals freedom. I mean, do you feel that in your past that 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 was something that you struggled with, and then, um, um, like, why why does that resonate with it, you particularly? I think we all do, yeah, uh, because we we all have these. Well, I don't know. I can't see. I can't imagine life without having huge goals. I mean, we. There, I'm sure there are some people, but I'm going to say this categorically just because this is how I feel. Yeah. We all want to be Superman. I mean, there are impossible things we want to accomplish. And so who really measures up to their their view of how they want to be? You know, So to get there, we all lack the discipline. <clears throat> and if we're honest with ourselves, um, there's so much to work on. You know, we're, we're, we're all weak. Mm-hmm. Um, and even Jocko, you know. And, uh, and sorry, will you tell me one more time? Jocko is, is the guy who, yeah, Jocko Willink is, uh, ex, uh, Navy SEAL commander. Uh, he now has uh, a company called Echelon Front and they, they teach businesses mainly how to be more successful, how to handle, um, how to, uh, work together towards a common goal and, uh, uh be all in basically. Um, and I just listen to his podcast because it inspires me. You know, yeah. I listen to his videos and whatnot. And uh, he has a lot of the same interests that I do. Um, I was one of those kids that thought it'd be really cool to be a Navy SEAL when I grew up, but uh, life didn't go that direction for me. And I'm happy with how my life went. But uh, I think he's somebody that uh, a lot of people can admire, mm-hmm. myself included. He he's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. Um, really big, strong, intimidating guy, but the super, just way intelligent, uh, really, uh, just a good guy. Yeah. Like he doesn't, he doesn't put his requirements on anybody. He just teaches people like, look, if you want to succeed, this is what I know about it. Mm-hmm. And that anyway, to answer your question, yes, I've seen that weakness in myself. And I think, I think if, I think everybody would, if they, they really looked at it, but yeah. I, I've, yeah, I've, I've needed to improve, so it's helped me a lot to get my act together and work harder and have more confidence in my goals. Yeah. I came to uh, Alvin's house here just a little bit ago, and we've been filming, and he's shown me around this new place that they moved into. Uh, he and his wife and kids moved into a new place down here in... Um, Fra- Franklin, Franklin, Idaho. Franklin, Idaho. Yep. They moved in here like six months ago, and it's just incredible how much work they've put into this place, how beautiful it all is, the studio that Alvin's put together. And of course, if you if you watch the, uh, the video that we've just uh, been working on, I'm sure that it'll be out there by the time you're listening to this. Um, that will be evident in, in, in the uh, footage that we've recorded. Um, so I, I think you've, you're, you're living that out. And it's inspiring to me because I do not have nearly the amount of discipline that that I that I see evident here in just like the first hour that I've been. Well, I'm glad it looks that way from the outside because it doesn't feel like that on the inside. Um, I wish I was like Jocko getting up at 4.30 every morning. But What, what um, time did you get up this morning? This morning was 6 o'clock. Um, That's pretty good, man. It's not too bad. Yeah. It used to be I, I was religiously getting up at 5.30. Um, but it, you know, you got to get your sleep too. You have to be healthy. Yeah. Everybody needs, depending on the person, seven to nine hours of sleep. And, uh, I know when I'm feeling healthy, when I'm not, and I need eight hours, eight hours of sleep a night, but I'm not disciplined enough to get to bed early enough to get up that early. Yeah. So that's, that's also part of the mix. You can't just get up early and go to bed at midnight, get up at four thirty, 30, yeah. get sick, you know? Yeah. But anyway, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you said that. Cause that makes me feel good. I, I, I'm glad it looks that way from the outside. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I like how we just kind of jumped right into to an idea that's inspiring you. Mm-hmm. What's what is something that you're 
that you're working on what's what's something down the line that this discipline is something that you're you're putting towards what's what's a project coming up that that you yeah. know hopefully that's all what's that goal that you're working towards i guess it takes me a long time to to no. ever get around to the, to the right question no i know looking for the right words is 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 painful sometimes yeah. i know what you mean um and just just try to keep in mind, like, okay, where do things need to go? For yeah, you? when I'm talking to my wife, sometimes, especially if it's something really important, I want to say it just right. Yeah, and she's so patient with me; she'll sit there and wait about five minutes for me to get to the point of my question. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> I'm there, dude. Um, yeah, uh, I am doing uh, along with uh, Josh Clare and Mike Malm and Grant Redden, and uh, uh, I think John Burton's going to be in on it too. I'm not sure, but. Um, we're doing a, a show called um, The Hole in the Rock Show. Uh, and it's going, I think that's what we're going to title it, I'm, I'm not sure, but it's about the, the Hole in the Rock Pioneer Trek um, in, back in, in southern Utah back in uh, uh, 1879. They went on probably the most difficult Pioneer Trek ever recorded. And uh, nobody died on the whole thing, which is the, one of the most amazing things. There was... There were hundreds of people and uh, thousands of animals. And anyway, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, no, tell, can yeah. I interject real quick? This was, was this like, this was uh, Brigham Young that, that was commissioning people to go out and settle across Utah? Sort of, yeah. Um, he, he was, uh, he, he had the idea um, because there were, there were a lot of Indian raids where they would come and, and, and pillage some of the, the farmers and whatnot. Um, and he wanted to make, good relations with them so he wanted to send some uh, send a settlement more deep into their their territory to have an outpost where they could develop those relations so it wasn't just this um this area where the west where the uh, the people came from the east and and settled and and there this constant conflict he wanted to disperse people out so they could anyway so uh, brigham young had that idea and after he passed on shortly after um, John Taylor um, was then the president of the church, and he implemented it. He he organized it and got people sent off, and and they so they went to settle this area, and uh, it was this really really grueling experience. They ran into all kinds of difficulties, and one of the biggest uh, difficulties they ran into was this place we now call the Hole in the Rock, where they ran into the. Um, um, the rim of a canyon going down into the Colorado River. And it was over 2,000 feet. Um, and not straight down, but um, parts of it were straight down. And uh, just getting to that point was, you know, beyond description. But I'll just try to put this in a little nutshell, not drag this on too long. But they had to blast this little crevice in the rock to make it and dig, dig it out and, and uh, drill holes in the rock and put um, uh, oak pegs in and then pile up timbers and gravel on top of that to, to build a road into a cliff to go down about 2,000 feet so they could go down and then cross the Colorado River. And uh, that's just one of the things that they did. And, and it, it was, anyway, it's so amazing. And it's such an untold story yeah. that we want to make this monument of, of work to, to this. And it's going to be three or four years of of us getting references and, and coming up with story ideas and, and uh, narrating the story basically through our paintings and uh, hopefully do it some justice. Um, story like that needs to be told. Yeah, several hundred people you said. Yeah, and all the animals that they needed. Um, you know, of course, it was really hard to feed those animals. That's a story inside itself. But they yeah. brought a lot of cattle along with them, a lot of horses. Um, they had mules like pulling their covered wagons. And because they're down. I'm- Utah is a very formidable, harsh yeah. landscape. Yeah, he, uh, I've I've been close to there, and I think I learned a little bit about this whole story. A little bit. Do you know how long it took them to to finally make that descent? Yeah, um, that descent specifically, I don't remember the the how many weeks that took, but the whole trek getting to where they were supposed to go was supposed to take six weeks, and it took about six months. Oh, so wow, um, they worked fast, actually. Yeah, yeah, it was they because they were all in. That's the only thing they had to do, and they had to do it. And they didn't have much resources, but they had uh, the ability to pull together, and uh, they just dug deep and and used all their ingenuity, and 
I think there was a lot of um, um, like mental human capital at work there. There's just it's amazing what our minds can do when we have to, you know. And they just had to, so they so they made it work. And we want to tell that story. Yeah. So I'm excited about that, and I want to do some big pieces that, that mean a lot to yeah. me, and will hopefully mean a lot to a lot of other people. Do you have uh, kind of along the lines of people overcoming extraordinary hardships? Uh, extraordinary obstacles uh do you have anything in your life that any any stories that that come to mind like hardships that you've been through that you're going i don't know how this is gonna i don't know how we're gonna get through this um that's a that's a good question um i feel uh if i was to bring up any of mine number one it would be maybe a little too personal yeah um but I'm not telling you that's a bad yeah. question. It's a yeah. great question. But number two, even even maybe more important, is I think we are so pampered these days. I mean, uh, the the poorest people in America uh, live better than the kings of the past. That's true. And so anything that I would have to complain about is would be laughable. Yeah. So I feel like no, no, I'm a I'm a pampered, uh, weak little uh, <laughs> first world twenty. 20th slash 21st century dude that has the world at his feet and I better make good use of it because if I don't I've wasted my life yeah you know I I owe it to all these people that have gone before doing difficult things like that 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 kind of that kind of uh, spirit that kind of dedication and sacrifice is what gave us this country Mm -hmm. and um, you know this country is basically the the first experiment the world has had of um, self-governance and letting people um, do whatever they will without a government getting in the way, making them pay exorbitant taxes and telling them you have to be here and you have to do this and you can't touch this and you can't touch that. Um, and through that freedom and their dedication to this purpose of you know creating something meaningful, whether it was religion or just the, the, the self-preservation or whatever it is that pushed them forward, America was able to develop this this world that we live in now that's shoot I can fly across the world at snap of a finger yeah. you know I can uh, and you know so I don't want to get on a soapbox with that but I just want to <laughs> say no I can't relate like I should be able to like I'd like to be able to say I could be able to but everybody goes through times that are very difficult emotionally for them yeah but I can't call mine comparable to theirs. Yeah. I just, I just can't. Yeah. It would be disingenuous. Well, let's go back um, to, we, we've kind of talked about uh, some things coming up in, in your life as an artist, but let's go back to, to the beginning. Um, tell me a little bit, you know, about how you got your start in, in the arts. Uh, uh, yeah. Let's start there. Well, first off, um, you know the the very beginning that I can remember, I was in second grade, and uh, my uh, my teacher gave the class an assignment to to draw some kind of a part of a narration of this little story we read about a fox. And so I went home. That was my homework. I went home, and I I, I don't remember ever drawing anything before that. And I was trying, and I, and I I was so frustrated. Like I couldn't figure out how do you even draw something? What the heck does that mean? And uh, I remember I was like to tears because I was so frustrated with this. And my mom sat down with me and said, well, just do this. You know, she's not an artist, but she had this, the skills that she developed over trying, you know, maybe a hundred times in her lifetime to draw something. And when I saw her draw the little fox, I was like blown away. Like you can, you can just create this neat little shape and these forms that mean something. There's a fox right before my eyes. So I was immediately in touch with my artistic desire right there and it was just I was blown away by this desire to to learn and I couldn't draw any better than anybody else to begin with but I just did it all the time and um, by the time I was in third or fourth grade I'd drawn more than most people had in their entire lives so then everybody starts looking and saying oh look he was born with this and all uh, they don't see (laughs) they don't see what what goes into that Um, and even at that stage I was nothing but compared to you know the other third and fourth graders I was isn't it amazing how like if we were to look at uh, like third and fourth graders the the difference between um, the the kid who is deemed the class artist by Mm -hmm. yeah by the other kids 
like the difference in, in skill there isn't that much, but it's kind of like everybody sort of knows somehow. Like, yeah. oh yeah, Alvin, he's the yeah, he's really good at this. Well, it's that label. I yeah. mean, if you if you do something enough to where you have some skill in it, then your little group of know nothings <laughs> is going to say he's the artist. And then that, that label, for better or for worse, does something to you. Yeah. And to me, it made me think, I am the artist. Yes. And so therefore, I draw more. Yes. And therefore, I will become great artist. <laughs> and so I worked my, my butt off uh, at it because I just wanted to be, I wanted to be awesome. And uh, in my teenage years, I got distracted like everyone else does. And, yeah. uh, you know, there were sports and there were, there were girls and there was uh, just having fun hanging out with the guys and there was camping and um, all this stuff. So I wasn't nearly as serious as I would have liked to have been if I could go back and tell myself, dude, this is what you can do with this. Yeah. And uh, until I was 21, well, let's see, I, I went on a mission for my church, served a, a mission in Brazil for two years. Um, and uh, so I went when I was 19, I came back when I was 21, then I started college at that point. And at college, BYU-Idaho, um, I was going into pre-architecture because I thought, oh, architects kind of are kind of like art, are kind of like artists, and they have this, uh, they have a good income, and you know, they have this stigma like architects make money, right? So I thought, okay, well, I'll do that because that's responsible. Right. But after doing that for a little while, taking a couple art classes on the side, I just realized, no, I gotta, I really gotta do just this art thing. And by then, I was I was already married, and my wife and I married uh, pretty young, and I was afraid that she was gonna say, "Are you kidding me? You're gonna you're gonna do the art thing? Don't do that to me." But um. I, so I took her out to dinner and I broke the news to her as the best way I could. And I, my surprise was that she responded like, yes, this is what I want you to do. Yeah. I'm so glad you made that decision. And so I've had her support she, from... She was... You were married at that time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So wow. I, I already, I roped her in, you know, we got her got her all committed and then I, <laughs> then I made the bad decision. No, um, but she was completely supportive. The, the bad decision of becoming an artist. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I just... No. Yeah. That was a great, it was a great decision and I'm so grateful that my life has gone the way it has. Um, but, you know, to everybody else from the, from the outside, it looks like extremely irresponsible. Like, mm-hmm. Who makes a living painting, right? Right. But um, she was really supportive and we've had hard times, you know, uh, as far as the career goes. Uh, everybody does. It takes a long time to develop. But um, I worked really hard and uh, by the time I graduated college, I was in galleries and was making a little bit of money. Yeah. Um, Did you have some like mentors that you could look at and point to and say, you know, in in the face of uh, feeling that pressure from the outside of that this isn't the safe path to go, mm-hmm. you go, yeah, I know you think that, but but I know about yeah. this person who um, who, d- who does make a living at it. Yeah, definitely. I I had to have that um, when I what what really did it for me. Leon Parson was. Uh, kind of my mentor at college. There were some other uh, great teachers that were influential to me as well. But I wanted to be a wildlife artist. And um, so he did my, my subject matter. I, I was a tight renderer at the time. He, a lot of his work is tightly rendered. And uh, I realized he had the skill set that I wanted. And, and um, he also had a really dedicated teaching personality. And he, he wanted to help. And so uh, he helped me to realize um, you can do this. He he kind of he put his art career on back burner, teaching as his first career. But it, he was also very successful selling his paintings and his prints. Um, but when I went to the National Muse- Museum of Wildlife Art, um, I saw Carl Rungus's work, mm. and I was just like, I was floored. <laughs> I was like, okay, Th- that's what made that that switch in my mind go. Okay, you've got to do this. I can't go to I can't go to my grave yeah. wondering whether I could have done this or not. Mm. It's just that's no longer an acceptable question. Yeah. So he him I looked to, and, and and I did a lot of checking up to you know see who was doing what. So I knew that there were guys out there making a living at it, um, and so I knew okay I can do this. And no matter what anybody told me, they just don't. When you're not in that world, you don't know. You don't know. Yeah. Um, and I knew that I knew that I knew you could do it, and I knew yeah. that it was really hard. But I didn't care. It's just like hard doesn't mean anything to me. Mm-hmm. Hard means I'm just going to have to do more to get there. It doesn't yeah. mean it's I'm not going to get there. Yeah, it just means more climbing. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, and that's kind of that's kind of a, a soapbox of mine too. I just 
Okay, this is going to be real controversial, but I'm going to put this out there. Yep. Go for it. Is, Let's break some news okay. here. Most, as far as most people conceive of this term, the, the way that people look at it, talent does not exist. Um, I've done so much studying on... You're saying that I'm saying, yeah, that's my, that's my stance. And of course, the word means something. And, and you know, you can say, you know, talent really means this or whatever. But most people, when they think of talent, they think something somebody's born with. Yeah. They can come out of the womb painting. Yeah. Um, it doesn't exist. You know, there's the, the world's best figure skaters. You know, they fell down thousands of times before they could, before they were good, with, without exception. Yeah. And there are people that learn faster than others, but I think that's more of a, uh, you're, you, uh, you know, there's a mental capacity to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Like we all have IQs and whatnot. And those are somewhat limiting, but I don't think very much limiting. Um, yeah. But what the way we're raised to think, the type of confidence we're imbued with, yeah. the type of success patterns we have growing up, give us the ability to learn faster or slower. Mm-hmm. And um, if you have the right mental, the right mindset, and you're you're uh, you're either your parents either put confidence into you or you you got confidence by defying the difficulty of your situation. It happens both ways. Um, then you become one of those people that can learn things quickly. Yeah. And there aren't that many things in life that have an actual physical limit to like, if you want to be a star basketball player, you've got to be tall. I mean, there are, there are short guys that have done it, but you've got to be a lot better player than if you're quite a bit taller in art and painting, you know, it's, it's just a skill set, you know? And so I believe in work. And when I see something that baffles me, I'm like, I want that. And I feel inadequate just like anyone else does. But I think I can do that. Yeah. I, I, I remind myself I can do that. And I, you break it down, figure out what steps do I need to take to get that skill set. And then you work your butt off at it until yeah. you get that skill set. And then looking back, it's not magic anymore. Um, but it's beautiful at the same time. It's mm-hmm. deeper. It's, a, it's more meaningful, even if you don't feel like the way you thought you would feel when you got there. But anyway... I love that pattern and the the idea that talents don't limit people. And people tell me all the time, yeah, but I can't draw a stick figure. Well, how many hours have you spent drawing? Have you spent, you know, let's go the, right. the 10,000 hour idea. Have you spent 10,000 hours drawing? No, but, well, it shows, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you did, you'd be as good as... You'd be better than me. Mm-hmm. I haven't. I don't think I put ten thousand hours in yet, but I'm on my way. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I believe in that principle so firmly. Yeah. And uh, I want everybody to know that because it's not. I'm not special. Yeah. And nobody's special. We're all special in that we have the ability to to achieve amazing things if we only just if we just believe in ourselves, believe in work, get the right resources, work our tails off. And, uh, you know, sometimes the stars have to align. If you're born in a country or a time when mm-hmm. you don't have the time, you have to work in that coal mine every day. You're, you know, but in America at this time, we have no excuses. I've heard a couple of, uh, I've, I've heard, I think Brian one time mentioned the idea, and maybe Josh, there's, there's two things that came to mind when you were talking that, um, that what one man can do, an, another can, yeah. do you, what's Do you know what that saying is? I think it's a. I think it came from Cassius Clay, uh, Muhammad Ali. I think it came from him, but it might have been Buster Douglas. But anyway, one of those. Okay. Famous I was boxers. just watching some some uh, things on Muhammad yeah. Ali. Oh my gosh! That yeah, guy was like one of the funniest, most entertaining. Mm-hmm. Just, just pure entertainment. Yeah, and, and he, then also an incredibly uh, gifted boxer. A gifted boxer. Yeah, and you know, there. That's where you can make an argument for you know, gifted, talented, and stuff. And, um, but I, I think you know the skills he had, he had to develop. Yeah. Um, but he had maybe a different way of looking at it. Um, but he believed that what one man can do, another man can do. Mm-hmm. So you ask any of these really successful people. And they'll all tell you the same thing. It didn't come free. Mm-hmm. And there are very few people that will say, I'm special. Only I can do this. No one else can do this. 
and then you see somebody knock them out. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it happens all the time. Like, um, uh, which is funny because like Ali, I mean, he was constantly saying, "I'm the greatest of the greatest," yeah. but he was. He was, <laughs> and I'm, but, I'm sure he eventually. It, I don't know the story of, of you know him finally losing. I'm sure that yeah, actually did. But but he wasn't saying, "I was born special." He was saying. I've worked the hardest and I'm intelligent and um, you know when you when you ask him about how he got great that's where that quote came from yeah what one man can do another man can do yeah and if you believe that more than anybody else and you work like you believe that more than anybody else then you're gonna be the best yeah and you know in boxing there are certain physical attributes that help he had longer arms than most people um, and uh, the type of you know faster slow twitch muscle type fibers you have plays into that a bit too but not that much just yeah. enough you know when you're at the top of the game like really the top of the game and there's like the top 10 20 boxers or whatever then those with the with the genetic gifts are going to show out at that point mm-hmm. but on the trail to that it's all work man mm-hmm. there that nobody floors out um you know mid level nobody our ceilings out rather nobody hits their top um, halfway there, you, mm-hmm. you know, it's just put the work in, you get the effort, you get the results. There, there's another quote that I know Josh has shared with me that that I feel like we need to maybe touch on because I'm sure you have some ideas on mm-hmm. this. It, it's I forget who it was. Uh, it's, it's something to the effect of with a strong enough why a man can can endure anyhow. Mm-hmm. You know, or, I'm not saying that right. I don't think. I don't, yeah, I'm not sure where that quote came from, and I don't know how to quote it either. I think it was somebody, um, somebody in World War II, somebody that survived something. Probably survived a prison camp or something. <laughs> I think so, yeah. And <clears throat> Victor Frankl. I think that that might that be him? Him. Okay, because yeah. I read his uh, Man's Search for Meaning a long, yeah. a long time ago. Okay. But that book was powerful. And that those types of situations where you have to survive and it's your only option and yeah. it's, it's extremely difficult that's where that's where people fully realize the power of the will yeah and um granted you know somebody can just things happen right you know you can get you get in a car accident you can get you know some one of those prison guys no matter I mean, one of those pow's no matter how dedicated they were they could have gotten shot or they could have gotten some kind of a, a disease that overtook their body or whatever but um they will say in a lot of these um, autobiographical accounts of these things that people have survived and lived through, um, they will almost unilaterally say um, it was those that came to that point of breaking and decided I will not break Mm -hmm. that survived. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, because at a certain point your will tells your body either to shut down or keep going um and uh man there, there are so many good examples of that i uh, uh so many things are happening uh nowadays you've ever heard of the iron cowboy i wish i could remember his his real name but if anyone wants to look him up they can he's a guy that ran uh uh 50 iron mans um in 50 days in 50 states Wow. So, like, Iron Man today, Iron Man tomorrow, Iron Man the day after, 50 days straight. And that, you know, that was considered completely impossible. And he talks about some of his breaking points. And uh, so there are, there are modern examples, too, where people put themselves in situations where they have to dig deep. Yeah. And he talks about his breaking point. And I'm not going to, you know, go through that. But uh, it's it's really impressive what we can do. And how, and when we hear about someone else achieving that, or if we hit that point, we can realize we really do have a lot more control over our lives than we think we do. Mm. You know, that, that rest you think you have to take, that candy bar you think you have to eat, um, that uh, video you think you have to watch, mm. uh, that time when you, have to, you think you have to get angry at your kids because they did something stupid, it's all malarkey. Mm-hmm. We, we, can, we can overcome this. Yeah. You know, it's... There's so much more potential we have than we give ourselves the ability or the the permission rather to um, to tap into. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. Let's get back to. Uh, so you kind of started out with 
doing uh, wildlife paintings. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long did you do that? What What was that like? Um, like I said, I got my first galleries before I graduated college, and I was uh, let's see, what was that? Probably two thousand four ish. Um, I don't remember at what year I made the switch over to figurative, but um, I became mainly a figurative artist uh, probably four, five years after that because I, f- I fell in love with the process of the learning process of painting from life. Mm-hmm. I loved plein air painting and I loved painting people from life because there's so much more interaction with the subject. And there's just a, a more rich experience rather than looking at this photo and trying to recreate it. <laughs> uh-huh. And yeah, no, there's more to it than that. And, and especially as I develop, I, I realize there's more creation in the mind than there is in the in looking at the subject matter and transferring it. Um, that's a higher skill set in my in in, in my yeah. goal mind frame right now. But with wildlife art, I couldn't do that. I had to find the best photos and pay copyrights to them or go out and spend tons of hours in the fields to the field to try to get the right photos and then reproduce those on canvas. So I was more, I, I became more interested in the time in the studio than I was in paying somebody's copyright to use their photos or get my own. So yeah. that's what made that transition. But then I just started loving, you know, telling stories with people, even if it's just a gesture or something. And, uh, so there's, there's a lot of richness that can happen when you interact with your subject matter. I've always wondered that with, uh, with wildlife artists, if, if a lot of times that's what they're doing is, is purchasing the copyright from photographers. A lot of times it is. Um, man, back in the glory days, like Rungus, mm-hmm. and that guy, he'd just, he'd he just, lived he'd, it. He'd kill him, yeah. kill the animal, yeah. and then tie him up with ropes. Yep. The they, didn't, they didn't have hunting regulations. <laughs> And uh, he'd have a crew of guys with him, so we could go out and shoot a bighorn sheep or whatever, yeah, yeah. and string it up, and he'd paint it from life. And you know, it wouldn't look like a live animal, but he would learn the anatomy and the colors and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. What happens outdoors with with fur and light? And did he actually? Are there paintings of his where you can see exactly what he was doing? Yeah. Like where there's ropes? He painted the ropes in, you know, kind of thing, where you just can I, tell. I, I'm not that sure. Yeah. Doesn't look alive. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure. And he, he actually, most of them, he painted them to look more alive. And he knew how they looked alive. He right. interacted with them all the time. Back then, they were less afraid of people, the animals. And there were, and he came from a background where in, in Germany, he, um, he studied at, I don't remember what institute, but uh, he learned um, the human figure and form and painting or drawing and all that stuff at a really young age. But he'd also go to the slaughterhouses and stuff and study the, the carcasses and and the animals that were waiting to get slaughtered. And he, one time he got a, he, there was a dead cat. And so he skinned it and, and painted its muscular structure, you know. And so he, from a very young age, he learned what he needed to know to imbue those animals with life. But he, um, each animal has a different, different colors, uh, different uh, proportions and things like that. And he learned those directly from life. And mm-hmm. so anyway, that's what he did. Bob Kuhn, similar in a different time, but very, very honest, um, approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, to get the right pose and stuff, if you're not, if you can't create it on your own, um, you need f- good photography and, uh, mm-hmm. you can't be there all the time. You can't be in the field all the time and be painting all the time. So, yeah. Okay. So then you kind of transition out of, uh, out of that kind of work studio, always working in the studio from, from photo references and kind of, and working that way, you get in, you kind of get back in touch then with painting from life. Cause were you doing that like in school? And, and yeah, I was doing that in stuff. school and that's actually where I was introduced to it. Yeah. Hey, you know, when I went into the university, I knew nothing about being an artist. I thought, I thought I had, I thought I was this child prodigy because everybody told me I was and, yeah. but I had no skill set. I mean, yeah. I could kind of I could look at a photo and, and reproduce something kind of like it, oh. um, but with no no gesture and no structure, just surface, you yeah. know. But so I learned all that there at BYU Idaho. They they it's not a really extremely in depth program because it's a, just a university. You have all these core classes and stuff. It's not like an atelier experience. Mm-hmm. But I learned enough to know what I didn't know before. I didn't know what I didn't know. Then I knew what I didn't know, mm-hmm. and that process got me excited about what I wanted to learn. And uh, so I painted from life there, 
uh, was encouraged to do plein air painting, um, did a lot, a lot of both that got me a, a basic skill set to start out with. And ever since then, I've just been chasing the, the skill set and the uh, expressive, my expressive nature and trying to figure out what it is that, uh, that makes a picture communicate and what it is that makes, uh, that fulfills me in creating those images. Mm-hmm. And so for lots of years, then you, you transitioned into the figurative work. Yeah. And and you're kind of still there, and, and but now more excited about plain air painting. Um, yeah, I never really, I never really separated the two that much. Okay. Um, but yeah, pr- professionally, my figures, my my figurative stuff was was selling, and I I felt like that's where I wanted to be in the market. Okay. And that's what I felt like was the hardest skill set for me to 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 learn. So I went, went after it. Um, but, uh, I've always known that, you know, you've got to know the landscape, you've got to know atmospheric perspective and, uh, design happens maybe easier when you can manipulate the subject more than you can a figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and those types of things, uh, helped me to, uh, keep them all kind of going. But yeah, lately I've been more interested in, um, you know, I, I, I kind of got, in studying the figure and trying to produce paintings that people would buy, I was, you know, being honest and I was trying to produce stuff that I liked, but it was still just, you know, the pretty girl with the flowers mm-hmm. and, you know, what can I do that's that's good looking, what looks nice. Mm. Um, <laughs> but now I'm wanting to be more meaningful and I, I am seeing, and I've seen a lot more work now, you know, I've been to the Met and seen a lot of Russian work and stuff where I feel like there's so much more to be done with the combination of landscape and multiple figures and narrative storytelling, um, effects of light, um, you know, communications of, of moods with that storytelling so that you can get people involved emotionally as well. And that whole package deal is something I'm after now, which is so big and so hard to chase, but it involves plenary, uh, painting figures, um, composing, inventing, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Any recent sort of breakthroughs for it? Any, any aha moments? Let's see. There are so many little learning moments, especially you know talking with with like-minded people that that I that I admire. Um, one of the, the the big ones recently is is learning the importance of owning the subject matter so you can create from your mind. Um, and then you can use... What do you mean by owning? Um, I feel like, okay, I could go in and anybody could go in and just draw anything, right? People say, oh, I can, I can paint anything. Well, anybody can paint anything. It's how good is it done? You know, how well is it done? Um, uh, but owning the subject matter well enough, like if I, if I know, let's say horses, okay. if I know horses so thoroughly that I can decide in my mind what image I want to create with horses mm-hmm. then I can draw that out in a way that is uh, naturally plausible um, and then I can take uh, reference material that doesn't do the job but fills in enough of the cracks to make me create something really convincing and really powerful and is exactly what I meant to express with that horse you know what I mean? With the initial idea. Yeah. So the idea is, it can become the most important thing because the subject matter doesn't hold the idea back. Um, if I have to rely on the perfect photo, you never get the perfect photo. Then this, the idea is going to be, uh, pushed behind my inability to get the perfect photo. But if I have a perfect understanding of a horse and I want to express that, that something you know, whatever it is that I want to express with that horse, then I can express it and use whatever I have available, uh, looking at a horse or looking at photos or whatever I need to do to fill in the cracks. But my knowledge will be sufficient to make that horse plausible, uh, naturally appealing, uh, and communicating whatever expression I wanted with that subject, um, powerful enough and not held back by any lack of ability for me to interject my idea onto something. I think for most of my career, I've been trying so hard to understand the subjects that um, I've been painting the subjects, but now I want, I want more to be able to invent an idea 
mm. which naturally will have subjects. Right. And those subjects will serve my idea rather than, yeah. And, and does the idea also, like, is it, is it more than just a, oh, yeah, like what you said earlier, I want to make pretty things, but does the idea get to some deeper truth that maybe you're kind of dancing around that, that then the, uh, that the subject, I, that the subject then helps to helps to yeah like bigger ideas than just than just beauty yeah than just I guess I don't know yeah beauty is a big word <laughs> I'm really struggling no it's it's okay I, I think I know where you're coming from because I've given that a lot of thought beauty is a big word and it can mean a lot of different things it's you know it can be in a really trite thing like you know a cute little girl with a cute little bunny holding cute little flowers yeah. You know, and, and if and that you can paint that subject yeah. and it can be deep and meaningful. But you get the idea. That's the that's the anyway, that that's the, the surface non depth look yeah. at it. Now it's maybe not getting at it doesn't maybe get to any of like you you've been really passionate about several different things even in this in this little talk here. Mm-hmm. But like that the, the, the cute girl with the bunny rabbit doesn't really speak to any of of those things. right yeah so that's I think that's like the the bigger underlying truth mm-hmm. that maybe you're passionate about and maybe it's not that necessarily the things that you said earlier yeah. but that there's something else okay there it, that you're trying to yeah bring into the world if you're looking at uh, if you're trying to get to like my modus operandi as an artist for my whole life it's I don't have it okay um I think I don't that, know that I do either. Yeah, I think that we as human beings are all uh, we all have depth to us. Whether we can express that depth or not is is a, another question. But you know that's that's why people do beautiful, amazing things. That's why people dig deep and do do things that we wouldn't even consider beautiful, but are just powerful things. And that's even I think why tragedy happens and and somebody falls into this darkness where they feel like they have to do something horrendous and i'm not excusing that at all it's it's ugly it's terrible it should be uh, i wish you could wipe it away from the human race but it's just it's just there because they feel so deeply and you can go either way with that you can go to the route of goodness or you can go the route of evil and um so that that depth of the human soul can never be, I don't think it can be fully defined, but, and I would be disingenuous to say that I have a specific message to the, mm. to what that means, but it's just a depth that I feel. And because I'm a visual person, I like to communicate that depth visually. Yeah. And as I develop my skill set, I am able to use various subject matters effects of light uh, shape arrangements to communicate what I'm feeling and I don't know how it works but it works I mean there's there's a reason why so many of us have looked at a great painting or heard a great piece of music and just stood there and just cried yeah like I've had tears pouring down my face listening to the right piece of music mm. or looking at a painting that just floored me and goosebumps all over um, and that it doesn't matter um what the subject matter is to to make that happen but it, it does the subject matter triggers something within us it does have a part to play in it but me um i'm i'm after that feeling i'm after expressing the depth of the of my soul because i can't express someone else's soul right. but in a way that will connect to other people's souls so that my greatest desire in in my work is that somebody will look at my paintings and feel that depth of their soul and it will take them to a, a good place mm-hmm. because there are a lot of dark places to go and that's easier to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so easy to put something vile out there that triggers an automatic depth of disgust or fear or anger, but something that creates 
a depth of beauty and creation, just like I'm so glad to be alive. I'm so glad for this beautiful world that, that God created for me. I'm so grateful for just light, mm-hmm. you know, um, for this experience that these people went through in history to create this world that I now live in. Mm-hmm. It can be narrative. It can be, you know, an effect of light. It can be, it can be a bunny rabbit. It can be uh, a, a narrative, uh, an, um, an illustration of a story. It can be a portrait of somebody. Mm. It's not limited. Um, but if I'm honestly seeking that depth and to express that depth, yeah. then I'm doing something that I feel fulfilled in. If we can have a posture of gratitude towards towards the world, like as we go to paint, then we we can't help but then start to maybe put that out on the on the canvas. Yeah. But it but I so much of what I'm hearing from you is like just having that posture of gratitude towards yeah the people that got you here, the air that you breathe today, yeah, everything in your life right now. Yeah, it's there's so much to be grateful for. If you're not grateful for something, hold your breath for a minute. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Then you'll discover what your favorite thing is. Oh uh, yeah. You know? It's Air is your favorite thing. Yeah. Whether you knew it or not, air is your favorite thing. And then uh, go go a day without drinking. And then you'll discover that your next favorite thing is water. Uh-huh. And how lucky are we that we have... We can just just take a breath yeah. and feel... If you feel the gratitude for that breath, you can feel like your body receiving it. And it's and not getting all spiritual, esoteric on it or anything like that. But you, when you're grateful for things, you can feel the beauty in them and they can become... Mm. You can become a grateful person, even even in the darkest times. Um, and uh, I'm not trivializing anybody's uh, mental illnesses or hard experiences, um, but uh, even when you're going through those, you can find a way, at least, to hope for that feeling again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what art is for. That's what, to me, God has given me this to say. Okay, you have you, you you have this, or you have this path. Now go and make other people's lives better with it. Mm-hmm. And some people can hear the birds and get it, and take a breath and look at the lake or whatever. But why not create a beautiful painting that can add to that? You know, I'm not I'm not going to compare my creations to the shoot, go on a hike, you know, somewhere right. scenic, and it's way better than anything I could paint. Yeah. But if I can put something on your wall that makes you every once in a while stop and go, oh, wow, that makes me feel good yeah that's what i want yeah it's a, it's a beautiful feeling it's a, a lot of times those those little handmade things like putting a painting on your wall knowing the artist mm-hmm. knowing the person that that shaped the i've got a coffee mug that i'm uh, that i really love that i know the person who made that coffee mug so when i'm drinking it it's also it's not just that painting it's also it's that I'm reminded that a human person mm-hmm. saw some beauty in the world and, and cared enough to, to do something about it and take yeah. action and, and, and wanted to reflect some of that back. Right. And that kind of keeps me inspired and keeps yeah. me wanting to... That's, that's beautiful. That's nicely put. Um, like the Industrial Revolution, stuff like that, they, I'm so grateful for those because... Because of that, we've got all these cheap things around. We don't have to pay <laughs> exorbitant amounts for like something as simple as a spoon. Right. You know, um, but because we have all that, then you can appreciate a handmade mug and you can, you can appreciate enough to go, I'm willing to spend a hundred bucks or 500 bucks on this because I think it's beautiful because it's going to give me that feeling of connectedness and that feeling of gratitude and just that beauty in my life yeah. or this, this painting on my wall or... Um, gee, I, I like the, the way that car looks better than the other. And, and, and you're willing to, you know, how blessed are we that we can choose where to put our money, you know, mm-hmm. um, to, to invite beauty into our lives. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are things that I consider more beautiful than others, but that's up to the, to the viewers to decide. And I, 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 f- I feel like, you know, I, I try to waste some less of my resources on things that that aren't going to last and aren't going to make me feel that gratitude or maybe something that'll, f- um, something that'll make me feel like, uh, like junk later, like some junk food or, or <laughs> watching too much, too, too many movies or I don't, I don't understand 
Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a little prejudice here. I don't I don't understand the gamer thing, you know. Oh. But <laughs> people that people that enjoy that, great. I'm not I'm not knocking on you directly, but that's one of the things that I would say. I've got too much. My time's too valuable. My resources are too valuable. I would rather spend, even if it was just about money. Let's say painting wasn't my thing. Uh, if I was just going to work, I would rather work an extra two hours and get the income from that and then buy something that makes me feel like more of a connected human being than spend those two hours staring at a screen, pretending I was somewhere else doing something that isn't real. Yeah. You know, the real world is so beautiful. It's, it takes more work to connect with it, more, more money, more time, uh, traveling. Um, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just opening your eyes and being kind to someone next to you. But that is what's real. That's what's fulfilling. Yeah. And so don't waste, don't waste your time, your money, your energy, your efforts on things that are just empty. I love it. Well, let's let's start to wrap this up a little bit so we can go yep. out painting. But I've my, got a hold, hold on. My hold talker's on. tired. I've got a few. <laughs> no, this is perfect. We're, we're at like uh, we're at like fifty five minutes, so this is exactly the right amount of time. Cool. Uh, last question: Who who are some of the artists that that you're really grooving on these days? Let's see. Well, I still love Rungus. I uh, mean, even you look at his plein air stuff and his landscapes and stuff. Just powerful guy. Um, Nikolai Feshin, one of my all-time favorites. Yep. Um, the whole the whole Russian thing that happened behind the Iron Curtain because they were so. Um, I am not a fan of of uh, Soviet socialism and all that stuff. Yeah. But what they created over there by isolating themselves from what I consider to be a lot of not so meaningful stuff happening on this side of the world was great. Uh, R- Russian impressionism. Uh, Russian realism, all that stuff. That, that's probably my biggest package to out there, all those guys. Yeah. Uh, from, um, um, well, anyway. I, uh, Leviton. Jeez. Um, I'm drawing a blank with names right I now. I know. I was it's, just trying to think of... It's uh, terrible. The, the portrait guy. Ilya Repin. Oh, yeah. yeah I, was gonna, I was thinking of him, too. Repin was one of my favorites of that genre. And I'm actually... Go, we're going to Russia in uh, September... Oh, really? For the first time. And I'm really excited to see their work in person. I mean, those big monumental multi-figure landscape everything paintings. Yeah. The everything paintings. That's what I'm excited to see. They're awesome. I've been to the Met a couple of times and it's it's beautiful. It's, it's amazing. But I want to see a lot of big, powerful Russian paintings. That's my number one influence, I think. Yeah. So. Very good. All right. Let's get out there and paint. Let's go paint, man. That's Thanks what so. we're here for. Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for you. Thank you. Thanks for grateful you came by. Let me uh, bug you with a video camera and a, and a microphone today. Well, I'm not the best on camera or mic, but I appreciate the opportunity. Um, you're a, you're an inspiration with the work you do. You do great paintings, and, and I love I love how you uh, you um, share the other artists that you know journeys as well. And, and uh, I'm really excited to see this come out. Thanks. Part of it. Yeah. So. Uh, This'll, this will be uh, kind of the first podcast in a series where I'm going around here in this next month uh, interviewing these different artists uh, that have been a part of the gallery over the last five years and we're going to put a show together that will be uh, available on the website and hanging on the walls of the gallery. Uh, not exactly sure on the date yet, but sometime in June. So stay tuned for that and I hope you'll consider picking up one of Alvin's paintings. Thanks for listening.